That was a setup, eh? <laughs> yeah, I like lots of things. I'm sort of an eclectic dude. Uh, I'm into basketball right now and enjoying coaching and refing and watching what's going to happen with March Madness and all that. So are you into March Madness at all, anybody here? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, two of you. Wonderful. Okay, all right. At the end of the day, I go home, end of my work day. Going home is a little bit of procedure. I gather my things in my office, I stuff stuff in my briefcase, put my jacket on, I get close to the door, and then because of my maturing senility, I stop for a minute or two and try to, you know, did I get it all so I don't have to come back at night and, you know, get it home, and I, okay, I got it all, turn off the computer, everything that's good, and I, you know, turn the lights off, close the door, walk out to my vehicle, take a, uh, you know, on the, home, on the way home, I, I de-stress. It's a practice I, I picked up early in my pastoral ministry like dinosaur days ago and uh, I, uh, I de-stress so I take you know some deep breaths and go to the you know oh that one's over that feels good you know and like, driving along and I thank God for the day that's been passed thus far and at that last corner just before I turn onto the street where I live I dump all the problems of my day on Jan Cinnamon's doorstep. <laughs> and then I drive, pull into my driveway, get out of my car, I come in the house, my wife welcomes me, there's a meal there for me. After, after supper, I sit down and I, I have this Korean lemon honey tea, you know, that gel stuff that you put in, oh, the elixir of life. And I recline, ah. I'm home. By the way, uh, when I go back by Jan's house the next morning, I, I don't pick the problems up because they're all gone. Thank you, Jan. <laughs> At the end of this term, past term, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of you went home or went to a home. What does going home feel like? What does it mean to be home? Where is home? You know, we have sayings about home. Home is where the heart is. Ah. There's no place like home. For those of you older folks, fans of Little House on the Prairie and Laura Wild Ingalls, whatever her name was, home is the nicest word there is, she said. I love what Billy Sunday, an evangelist of a century or so ago, said, home is the place we love the best and grumble the most. Someone else said, the ache for home lives in us all. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Charles Parker said, home interprets heaven. Home is heaven for beginners <laughs> like that. Sadly, for some here, home is maybe not as idyllic as I've made it sound. We've been talking about two disciples on their way home. 
disillusioned and confused. But they were going home to a place where there's known safety and security. They were going home to a place of stability. They were going home to that which was familiar and welcoming. They were going to a place where their lives had some meaning and significance. And we meet them on that road as recorded in Luke chapter 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So we're looking at, you know, a two to three hour little walk there, eh? They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Being the disciples of Christ, as disillusioned as they were, they had some expectations. They had some expectations about Jesus and his anticipated intervention on behalf of Israel. For you see, in 63 BC, Israel, which was considered larger part bulked in with Syria, came under Roman rule. And Herod the Great, who was sort of the, some people call the client king of Rome, who had to report to Roman authority, was the head honcho. And life was not easy for the Jews under Roman rule. And thus, most of the Jews during this period were anticipating a time when God would intervene decisively to reward his people and to punish evildoers. And the return of some of the Jews to the promised land had sort of made that fulfillment start to, start to go. But many of those promises remain unfulfilled. Israel languished under Gentile domination. And the people were far from the righteousness that the prophets had predicted. Many Jews were looking for a royal warrior model like David, whom God would bring for his final kingdom. Others expected two messiahs, one royal, one priestly. Still others expected no Messiah at all and just expected God to come down and directly intervene. And that was the expectation of these two disciples. On their way home to Emmaus. And when Jesus asked them what they were talking about, they had said, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. They were looking for the day of the coming of the Lord. That day is described in the Old Testament in various places. In Malachi, for instance, it says, Malachi 2, starting in verse 17, on into uh, chapter 3, um, the prophet Malachi says, says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and, and saying he is pleased with them. 
or asking, where is this God of justice? I will send my messenger, Malachi says, on behalf of the Lord Almighty, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desired will come, says the Lord Almighty. And he's not coming softly. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, that theme is continued. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be, will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, said the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. That's what they were looking for. The day of the Lord was often talked about, is often used in the Old Testament. It conveys a sense of imminence, a sense of nearness, a sense of expectation. The prophet Isaiah says, wail, cry out. Because the day of the Lord is near. The Old Testament passages often referring to the day of the Lord speak of both a near and a far fulfillment. Some passages that refer to the day of the Lord talk about historical judgments that have already been fulfilled in some sense. And then other passages talk about the day of the Lord that will, that will be a divine judgment that will take place at the end of the age. And so, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke notes that beginning with, all, with, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said concerning, in all the scriptures concerning himself. And we've looked at some of those explanations over the course of these last few months. The image of God, the call of Abraham, the burning bush, the exodus, the Passover, sacrifices, uh, the tabernacle presence, uh, day of atonement, the festivals, and a couple of weeks ago we looked at the uh, year of the Lord's favor. But there's something missing in all of that. And... Not that we could have been totally inclusive anyway of everything that Jesus said. We don't have a clue, really a clue of what he said. We're only imagining. But here were two despondent disciples heading home to Emmaus. You know, they may have, they may have witnessed the crucifixion. They have, may have been to the burial tomb. We know that they gathered together with other despondent, confused, angry, and mystified disciples. And then we know that they had heard that the tomb was open and empty. And their very words to Jesus in appearing to them on the road spoke that their hopes were dashed. For we go on to read, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. 
one of them named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus, feigning ignorance, said, what things? Love that. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who is going to deliver, to redeem rather, Israel. The one in whom they had placed their hope was gone, vanished. And so was their hope. I have a sneaking suspicion that Jesus not only took them through the Old Testament scriptures, but just as poignantly reminded them of what he had said in the last few years would happen to him. I think Jesus talked about some of the words that Matthew and Mark recorded talking with his disciples about the destruction of the temple and signs of the ends of times. That the Son of Man is going to return, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That the day and the hour of his coming is unknown, and we need to keep watch. I think Jesus told these two disciples that the similar kinds of things that Luke tells us about the warnings and encour- through warnings and encouragements and parables about God's judgment that's coming, calling people to repent because the kingdom of God is near and reminding them about the signs of the end times. I think he talked to them about what is recorded, what we have recorded in the book of John, where Jesus, after predicting his betrayal and death, comforts his disciples by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you with me that you may be where I am going. Cool. You know the place where I'm going. I'm sure Jesus would have mentioned to those two Emmaus disciples that in his place, before he comes back to take them to those rooms, to glory, I'm sure he would have told them that he's going to ask his father to send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've taught you, who will give you his peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. In explaining the scriptures to them, I think what Jesus was doing was connecting the dots to himself. But what he was doing underneath all of that 
in connecting the dots, I believe, was trying to restore their hope. Verses 30 and 32. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. So Jesus at the table with these disciples. He gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared. Cool. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They recognized that their hearts were on fire. They were in the zone. (laughs) Their hope was renewed. They were engaged again. They were inspirited. But why was it important for Jesus to renew their hope? I think the answer is very simple. Life is difficult. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we not only should glory in what God has done for us and boast about it, but he says that we should glory in our sufferings. Glory in the difficult stuff of life. Because we know that suffering produces what? Perseverance. Because we know that perseverance produces character. And because we know that character produces hope. And what about hope? Hope does not put us to shame, Paul says. It does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a fantastic promise. What a fantastic truth. The Emmaus Road disciples had lost hope. They were put to shame. They were disappointed because they had lost the one who was going to redeem Israel. And friends, I want to remind us that it's the presence of Christ that brings hope. It's the presence of Christ that allows us to continue on. It's the presence of Christ through the indwelling spirit that gives us that hope. The psychologist Charles Charles Snyder back in the early 90s came up with what is called hope theory. According to hope theory, hope consists of two basic things. Hope needs an agent and hope needs pathways. Two things, agent, agency, pathways. The idea there is that the person who has hope will have a, a will and a determination that goals will be achieved and there will be Secondly, some pathways, a set of different strategies to reach those goals. Put simply, hope involves the will to get there, the agent. And the pathways are 
just different ways to get there. I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing here for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He was connecting the dots, but he was showing them that the agent of their desires was alive. The one who could make that promise fulfilled was alive. He had indeed risen from the dead. All was not lost. Don't abandon ship. Don't give up. Don't be downcast. But not only was the agent alive who could do this, but there were new pathways, different strategies that were going to be put in place that would allow them uh, to have those promises fulfilled. As he promised, he was going to go prepare a home for them. And in the meantime, they would not be left bereft and alone because the Holy Spirit, the one sent in Jesus' name, would be given to them by their heavenly Father. As they were sitting at that table and they were breaking bread, I can just imagine when they recognized Jesus all of a sudden, oh, everything sort of come together. You know, the pieces of the puzzles came together. And, and here they have in front of them the master who's now gone. And I can imagine that one of the questions that they were left with was, you know, we've, we've heard all of this. But how, how should we live? How should we continue to live in light of what we've just heard? Uh, Dr. Allison, if you're in the room, I have a, near, a new theory for you to test out about the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Because I'm wondering if one or both of these Emmaus disciples wrote that book. Because I think that the book of Hebrews in some ways replicates what those disciples heard from the very mouth of Jesus himself. And all through Hebrews, the writer is connecting the dots to Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Wow. This is our living Lord. And Hebrews goes on to talk about this Jesus who was made fully human. This Jesus, our Jesus, who is greater than Moses. Our Jesus, who is the great high priest. Our Jesus, who is the great high priest of a new covenant. Our Jesus, who was sacrificed once for all. If this is what the Emmaus Road disciples heard and are now passing on to us. I think there are two key takeaways that answer the question, how then should we live? 
So here's the setup. And I'm going to ask the music team if they'll come up while I finish up here. If you could do that right now. So here's the setup to those two key takeaways. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and unjoyfully accepted the con confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then the writer quotes Isaiah the prophet, for just in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. We're called to persevere in faith. And chapter 11, as it goes on, gives us the first takeaway of how we should live as a result of what we have heard. Chapter 11 in Hebrews, we often call that, you know, the chapter of faith, the hall of faith, and all those kinds of things. It talks about creation and, and the works of different people and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, Moses, Joseph, and a host of others. And all their accomplishments done by faith, done mostly supernaturally. So how do they do all that? Here's the first takeaway. Remember where your home is. Remember where your home is. Chapter 11, in the middle of all of the recording of the annals of what these people did, it says this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, yeah, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Remember where our home is. It's not the security that we long for here. It's not the stability that we try, strive for here. It's not the meaning and significance that we try to build around our lives here on this earth. It's going home.
Excuse me. The second takeaway is found in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart or hope. But there is one question remains as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Is he worthy? Worthy.